Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's July 12th, and I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Harges. Calling into Fool HQ in the rather swampy Alexandria, Virginia, is Todd Campbell, a Fool.com healthcare specialist. Welcome to the show, Todd. Anything new and exciting? Hi, Christine. Is it raining there? Why is no, it No, it's just, it's really humid. You know, and that they say it's not the heat, it's the humidity, right? It is. Yeah. I have a friend from Georgia who says it's about 10 degrees hotter there, but he can't stand it here just because of the way the humidity like sucks you in. Oh, and it's so oppressive. You walk outside and it's just, you, you start sweating immediately. It's just no fun. It's a great day to be inside filming a podcast. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. The studio is freezing as usual. Anyway, so this is the Wednesday show, and so you guys, our listeners, hopefully have been listening for the Monday and Tuesday show, but just in case, this is the first industry focus show that you're listening to this week. It is Never Will I Ever Week, where we're talking about some investing choices that we personally will never make. Todd, do you want to do the introduction for our healthcare Never Will I Ever? Never Will I Ever buy a preclinical biotech stock solely based on the hype Yes. So, just not going to do it. Just yeah. won't do it. And, and of course, this is just you and me. There are probably investors out there that are interested in doing this kind of thing, and they have extremely high appetites for risk. But we, the two of us, uh, decided that we're just not interested in getting in on companies that are that early. And so we'll walk through exactly why that is. Christine, I want I want all of our listeners out there to grab a sharpie and a post-it note. And I want them to write on that post-it note 90% and put it on their monitor. And then we'll explain why in a minute. Sure. So that 90% is a warning that over 90% of drugs entering phase one trials do not make it to approval. That's right. I mean, it's it's the failure rate is incredibly high. I mean, think about it. If it was easy to develop these medicines, we would have cured all of these diseases now. It simply isn't. There's a tremendous amount of trial and failure. And like a lot of things in life, you learn from those failures, but failures tend to uh, occur more commonly than successes. And I think it's very important for everyone who traffics in biotechnology stocks to take that post-it and keep it on their, on their monitor and anytime they see some company that came out of nowhere uh, issue a press release saying, in preclinical studies, our drug did X, uh, look at that 90% and say, yeah, call me back when you get through phase two. Right. So the thing about not even being in phase one yet is that your drug is completely unproven in humans, which is kind of worrying because it's very easy to paint a story about a small mouse trial having stunning efficacy in some disease that in humans has no treatment options, and this could potentially be a billion-dollar drug down the road, which down the road at that point would be at least you know four years, maybe, probably more. And so it's very easy to get caught up in the storytelling there. It's it's very attractive. But for your money, it's just too soon. Yeah, I mean, think about it from the perspective of the biotech company that's putting it out there. They know that all of this research that they're going to have to do to get their drug from through the clinic and through the FDA and to market is going to cost them a lot of money. So they're going to obviously be looking for funding to help do their research. And you know you can't blame them for you know maybe being a little too optimistic at times uh, in their press releases regarding some of their early stage stuff. 
I think it might be helpful, Christine, to, to, to just remind investors very quickly how a drug uh, proceeds through clinic, the phases, uh, to the market. Sure. Go ahead and walk us through. Okay, great. So phase one trials would be your first human trials. Typically, those are dosing trials. So you're trying to figure out, okay, what dose of this drug will I want to pursue in later stage trials? Phase two trials are larger, and those trials are typically trying to determine whether or not the drug at that dose is safe in patients. Efficacy, or how well the drug works, is usually a secondary uh, endpoint within phase two studies. And then phase three studies are much larger studies. They involve a broad swath of patients, and those studies are designed to show that the drug works and that the drug is safe. Once phase three uh, results are in hand, if they're good, those can be put together in a package and sent off to the FDA. The regulators will then take a look at that package. Maybe they'll have an advisory committee meeting to discuss the findings, and then eventually they'll come up with a yes or a no, uh, either allowing or not allowing a drug to reach the market. So that's the, the quick and dirty of how a drug proceeds from that preclinical work on mice to um, you know, post-approval commercialization. And so something that's really important to consider there is that the data from phase one and phase two, while there will be uh, press releases about the efficacy of the drug in those studies, that's not really the point of those studies. And in fact, they're so small that you can't quite rely on those numbers to actually hold up when you get to phase three. And we see this all the time, where even, and, and you know, our, our never will I ever is about preclinical, but I even will say that we both go in with a, a healthy amount of skepticism investing in, in companies that are just in phase one or even just in phase two, because from that point all the way through FDA approval is still a long road. At that point, all you really have is safety data, and it's, it's safety data in a pretty limited number of, of patients. Um, right. Those, those trials are not being statistically designed to show significance and efficacy. So, you know, you really do. Like you said, you have to view these very skeptically. You may say to yourself, hey, this is really intriguing and I want to watch it and I want to pay attention to it. But remember, with that 90 percent failure rate, dr you know, drugs going from phase one to commercialization, the odds are stacked against you. And if you break it down by phase, you still have extremely high levels of failure rates. So a drug may su succeed in moving from phase one into phase two, but that certainly doesn't mean it's going to go from phase two to phase three. Right. Let's talk about one example of a drug that had that particular issue. This is a company that we've talked about on the show a good bit, and this is Juno. So Juno is developing CAR-T therapies, and they had a drug called JCAR-015. It was, at one point, its lead drug candidate. They had to halt their phase two trial back in July of 2016 after two patients uh, suffered from cerebral edemas. And so Juno changed the drugs that were used in the preconditioning for the trial, thinking that that would solve the problem, only to have another patient die. And so they had to scrap the entire program in March. Right. And that is, it was shocking to investors because the data from phase one looked, quote unquote, so good, right? Yeah, the Over efficacy 90... data was something that people were getting very excited about. Right. I mean, this was a stock that was $65 a share in early 2015. You know, this was a stock that was a high flyer based upon the what still may be 
the uh, um, um, ability of these CAR T drugs to help T cells better spot and destroy uh, cancer cells in the body. And we've actually got some interesting news this week. We're not talking about it on the show, but stay tuned. Um, look on Motley Fool for other articles on it. But I am Novartis so excited has for this. Their CAR T drugs uh, under consideration at the FDA, and there's a big committee go- meeting going on this week ab- about it. So these are important drugs, right, Christine? Um, but that doesn't guarantee that each individual drug that's being studied by each individual company will be the one that actually makes it across the finish line. Exactly. So Juno spent $46.4 million on this drug, and it wound up in the trash bin. And that doesn't mean that all is for naught with Juno. They have other drugs that are under development. Um, We've certainly covered them before on the show. If if any listeners are looking for more information there, uh, shoot us an email at industryfocus.fool.com. I'll happily send you some links. But at this point for Juno, it's like, wow, they, they... really ended up getting too overhyped about this early stage efficacy and then ended up having that main drug wind up in the clinical trash bin. Yeah, you thought you were going to be able to get this drug potentially in the marketplace around 2018. And with a 90% plus response rate in phase one trials, people weren't thinking, oh, you know, I guess the safety profile will be manageable. But at the same time, if you really dug into those phase that phase one data, you saw that there was, you know, a lot of cytokine response storms, uh, which can be life-threatening and cause problems. And then if you look back to what happened in, you know, early, mid-2016 with the first cases of brain swelling, you know, warning bells have to be going off. As these trials get increasingly bigger and patients have been on these medications uh, for longer periods of time, you dis- you learn new things about them. So it's very hard to say in a very small trial involving, a you know, a dozen or a couple dozen people that's been that have been evaluated for six months or 12 months, that you know that this drug is going to be both efficacious and safe over a longer period of time. It's really buyer beware. Yeah. And and that's the thing with a lot of these really compelling new types of therapies like CAR-T, where it has a really good story behind it, but because there aren't any approved drugs in the category on the market, you don't really have any long-term safety data or even safety data with really, really large amounts of people. Uh, So, you you mentioned the Novartis Advisory Committee meeting. That's one of the, the biggest things that they're going to be talking about today is are these drugs in general, CAR-T treatments, and also uh, Novartis' specific drug, which is called CTL-019, are these drugs safe? Um, another thing that they need to consider is, can you duplicate the drugs over and over again, such that the drug that the patient ends up getting is actually the same thing that went through trials and was approved by the FDA? So, right, and how do you ensure, Christine, that, the, that, the, that you're going to be able to maintain that level of quality as you try to decrease the amount of time vein to vein? Because remember, with CAR-Ts, you're removing the T-cells from a patient body, sending them off to a facility to have them re-engineered, and then sending them back to be reinserted back into the patient. So the shorter the time, uh, the better. However, as you're shortening that time, how do you guarantee that you're not going, that you're going to be able to maintain the same level of quality and consistency as you were during the pre, the clinical stage trials, uh, where you know vein to vein was a longer period of time. So. This episode was supposed to be about never will I ever, right? So I actually I've invested in Juno, and so maybe that it's not the best example, but I do have another example that I want to talk about of something that actually is way too early stage for me to invest in, and so this is an an even more highly hyped, I think, than uh, CAR T type of medical development, and it's also even earlier stage. And this is CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology. So most medicines today are designed to 
manage diseases or their symptoms, but CRISPR acts further upstream by editing the genes themselves that lead to the disease. But this is a space that is really, really in its infancy. This is a fascinating science, and I recommend everybody who's interested in biotechnology research CRISPR-Cas9 and learn more about it, because it could potentially be very, very, very intriguing and an entirely new approach to treating genetic disease. I also would recommend that after you've done that research, that you sit on your hands and you don't buy or sell any stocks within this class of uh, that are working on CRISPR yet. And you look back at that post-it note on your monitor. Yeah, 90% failure rate. So, <laughs> I mean, as a refresher, uh, CRISPR, what we're talking about here is uh, leveraging a really cool thing that bacteria does um, for use in humans. See, bacteria, the way that they battle back against invaders is they memorize um, a piece of the DNA of the invader and their own genetic code, and then they attach it to some, we'll call it genetic scissors, and when that invader returns again, they're smart, the bacteria is smart enough to go out, find it, cut it in the place where responsible for it or, uh, replicating so that it can't replicate in the future. So scientists uh, determined, hey, you know, why can't we use that same approach to go in and edit specific portions of our own genetic code to resolve problems with, say, malformed um, um, uh, genes or um, uh, proteins that aren't getting built correctly by those genes. And while it's really fascinating that the potential could be very big for these, uh, as you mentioned, this is all preclinical stuff. This, you know, this has not been tried in humans yet. Um, I think that you know one of the first companies considering putting this in, into humans will be uh, CRISPR Therapeutics, symbol there is CRSP. Um, they're looking at trying to do something beta thalassemia. I do not think that that this is at any point in, in near a point where we can say yes you should be investing in in this in this area it's just too early stage right they're looking to file their initial new drug application their IND in late 2017 so that, that, you know, that, that's extremely early. It hasn't even hit human trials. There's another company called Editas Medicine. Their ticker is EDIT, Edit, which I actually find rather fitting for a gene editing company. Uh, and they are also waiting on their IND for their drug, which is LCA10. And that, that now won't be ready to be filed until mid-2018. You know, the CRISPR story, Christine, is also interesting because it brings up an entirely different risk than we were talking about previously with our example with Juno, and that's with the intellectual property rights. Right. That is all over the place with CRISPR technology. There are a lot of people that are trying to lay claim to the patents because it does have so much promise. Yeah. Essentially, you've got UCLA research that was done at UCLA versus research that was done at MIT. And the founders of these respective companies came out or licensed um, the, the, the research that was done at those different universities. And of course, you know, whoever owns the first patent is the one that will get the spoils, if you will. So, you know, they're suing each other, trying to figure out whose patent is valid and whose patent isn't valid. And that's not resolved yet. I mean, they have right now it is leaning towards, uh, editas. However, you know, appeals are getting filed and things could change. And of course, if things change on the patent front, well, then again, that throws your entire reason for buying each one of these individual stocks 
um, up in the air. You you won't even you know it, it could be good or it could be bad. Who knows, right? And with a ninety percent failure rate, do you really want to take on the intellectual property risk as well? Absolutely. And given that there is that risk, there are also risks about the safety of this this technology. Uh, in May, Nature Methods published a, an article criticizing CRISPR-Cas9 for causing a whole host of unintended or off-target mutations in animal trials, and that's really not good for a technology whose promise is precision. And so this caused Editas and CRISPR Therapeutics both to fall on the news. But it turns out that when you reviewed that study, it itself was pretty flawed. But regardless of what the data behind that particular article says, I think it's a good warning signal that these are going to be extremely volatile stocks. They're extremely pricey stocks. Editas, for example, has a market cap of almost $700 million. I'll remind you, their most advanced drug candidate is still waiting to have its IND filed. That's pretty insane. And yes, on one hand, it does speak to the promise behind this technology. But on the other hand, that is just way too rich and too early stage for my blood. Mine too. And if you want to back up for one more second here, Christine, just on talking about the safety, um, that study on safety, it may be helpful for listeners to think of it this way. If you go to mail a letter, do you just send it to 123 Main Street? No, you tell a town, a, you know, a state, you know, a zip code, right? The problem potentially with, you know, using CRISPR-Cas9 is that right now they, they can only get it to the, to the 123 Main Street. You know, and you could actually get this letter delivered to 133 Main Street in New Hampshire or Virginia in Georgia. There are off-target um, places that CRISPR-Cas9 could end up snipping, and uh, you don't want to cleave in the wrong plate of place uh, in genes. That can create all sorts of havoc, including other cancers and crazy things. So, yes, there's a lot of work that still needs to get done here. These are already, you know, like you said worth hundreds of millions of dollars in market cap, even though they're not even in clinical trials yet. Too risky for my blood. Right. So, when it comes down to it, this is something that we will be watching. I remember at Fool Fest a couple of months ago, we were talking healthcare at a panel, and somebody in the audience asked us a question about CRISPR. So, I'll say now the same thing I said then, which is that it's fascinating, and we're watching it, and as soon as it becomes investable, we'll start covering it more deeply and giving our thoughts about where we think money is best placed in this industry. That's fantastic. I think that's like the, that's the takeaway. That and, of course, the 90% post-it that's on your screen. <laughs> yep. So, this word of caution about not investing in new technologies when they're too early stage probably appears in all sectors, but I kind of like how we're applying it to healthcare because it's pretty easy to set definitive lines where you can say, I'm not going to invest in something until I've seen phase one data or I've seen phase two data. So it's kind of up to you to decide what is your level of tolerance for risk. And it might change from different technologies given your level of understanding them and also the position size that you're you're going to create. I mean, it's it's kind of also about what helps you sleep at night. Um, if you guys are enjoying this theme week, never will I ever, please let us know at industryfocus@fool.com or on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, where I believe we've tweeted asking you guys, our Twitter followers, what you will never invest in. And if you have anything that you'd like us to hit on future shows, we would love to hear it. We're also always exceedingly grateful for reviews. If you like Industry Focus, please leave us a review on iTunes. It is so helpful for getting our podcasts in front of new listeners, and it's also good karma points for you. 
As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Shout out to our man behind the glass, Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!